Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Rebel News Daily Livestream. I'm Dakota Christensen, and joining me today, Adam Sos. I'm filling in for Sheila Gunn-Reed, who's normally here on Mondays, but at the moment, she's currently off on a very exciting adventure of ours to uh, do a little uh, bit of filing of a human rights complaint against Justin Trudeau. More on that to come. But first, Adam, how's it going with you over in Calgary? Oh, wonderful. Happy to be here. I think this is the first time we're doing this together, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, this would be good. You know what? Sometimes uh, we got to switch up the schedule, and I'm always happy to do so because it's good to <laughs> good to switch things up, have some different interactions with different uh, different characters in the cast here. At Rebel News. So yeah, I'm looking forward to this. This is good. <laughs> so, as I sort of alluded to there, Sheila is currently off on her mission in Geneva, and another thing is also going on in Europe right now. Our London correspondent Lewis Brackpool. He is back in the Netherlands actually covering the farmers uprising there because that's sort of been revitalized. Uh, there's a little more action going on with the farmers who have been pushing back against the Dutch government's uh, nitrogen emissions cap, which has been forcing farmers to reduce their production, they're having to you know, call livestock, reduce the amount of fertilizer they're using, it's reducing output of crops, whole disaster. And that's also coming for Canada, um, which Trudeau has announced his wonderful liberal cabinet. So it's uh, great to have another rebel back on the ground there to cover all the action going on in the Netherlands. I don't know, Adam, if you got any thoughts on that, I think it's exciting to uh, to see Lewis back out there covering this because it's such an important issue that is going to be affecting all of us very soon. Yeah, for sure. I just want to encourage folks before we sort of get rolling here as well to engage with us on the different sort of mm -hmm. platforms that are available out there. Um, if you do a paid chat, we'll interact with them as the show moves along. Uh, one, it kind of makes us a sort of connected experience for us with you. One of the reasons we do these sort of daily shows is so that we can have that conversation, the live reaction to unfolding stories. And one of my favorite parts is really towards the end of the show, when we get that feedback, whether it be um, uh, things they'd like us to address or their comments on current stories that we're talking about. It's great to really get that back and forth. So encouraging people to do that as well. Um, yeah, the, you know, the, this, the situation with the Dutch farmers, very obviously reminiscent and to an extent expired, inspired by the events that unfolded here in Canada with our own trucker rebellion. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's it, it, the bizarre thing here is the stalemate the stalemate sort of implies both sides are at an impasse, but I don't know if that's necessarily f fair because what, what's happened here is the government has completely shifted the paradigm. They've introduced an impossible circumstance and they've not, they're not starting from a level playing field. They've brought something in that will devastate farms, devastate livelihoods, similar to some of the COVID-19 restrictions, travel mandates, all that stuff. The truckers responded to that taking place. Now these farmers are responding to their industry being attacked. So the, the sort of blanket statement that it's an impasse. Well, it's an impasse because the government has suddenly said, well, 30% of your your uh, your livelihood is basically gone. It's the equivalent of the government suddenly taking away 30% of our equipment. Like, I don't have a camera right now. You have a camera and I have a mic and you don't have a mic. It, it's such a fundamental. And I mean, for most people, they maybe don't understand what a 30% cut in fertilizer means. Uh, but it, it, it's like losing 30% of everything because that is such an integral part. Sheila could certainly testify to this mm -hmm. as she has that farming experience. But if you take that away, that means a 30% loss of yields. It means a 30% of loss of all these others and investments. Some people have basically got all the other equipment in place. They've invested massively. Some of these farmers have massive loans in place um, in order to be paying off equipment that and they can only make these payments if they're outputting at maximum capacity. Now, farmers sometimes have a bad year, 10, 20% down, really bad years, even more, but they count on these years where there's good sort of rain or there, there's there's good weather, the last thing they need is an, another 30% hit, particularly when the world is dealing with food shortages, there's instability, wars, all that sort of stuff going on. And we've completely lost the plot when, when we're, we're thinking that this is okay. For anyone out there paying attention to this, this should be extremely alarming because when there's 30% less bread, when there's 30% less food, that's just going to mean more inflation. It, it, it's, it's devastating, not just for these farmers, but it's going to ripple throughout all of society. And it's so important that Lewis is there on the ground now because Justin Trudeau is planning on doing this here in Canada. After this response, after international 
national outcries after concerns from experts and specialists in the field. Justin Trudeau was like, you know what? I think we're going to do this in Canada too. It's madness. Yeah. I mean, it is so clear. I think the sort of fingerprints of the World Economic Forum is, you know, Agenda 2030 and all this sort of top-down globalist governance that's happening there because it's not like Trudeau's looking over at the uh, the Netherlands and saying, oh, wow, you know what? That looks great. They're having such a great time there. This is what we should be doing. Uh, it seems pretty clear that there is some coordination there in terms of, no, this is the agenda that's being put forward by the World Economic mm -hmm. Forum and those who run in those circles. And then these government leaders who, you know, subscribe to that, Trudeau very much at the forefront of them is saying, you know what? Yeah, we're going to push this agenda. We need to force the farmers to produce less food to save the planet. Uh, and essentially, that just means pain for literally everyone, the entire sort of ecosystem of our food and our economy, uh, you know, on top of already the completely unsustainable money printing and spending and inflation, all that it's all compounding. And it's like, are they trying to just make everyone miserable? I mean, of course, if you look at the World Economic Forum, and of course, yeah. you got a great docuseries on that, all leading up to the you'll owe nothing and you'll be happy. Government controls everything. And uh, no, I'm sorry, guys, it's not just a theory. It is a conspiracy. There are conspiring people, but it's not just a theory. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fact. Expose the reset.com mm -hmm. or .ca for that. One of those two, try and both. Um, incredible work um, being done there. But yeah, the, the thing that's so sort of, creepy about this is just how ideological it is. Mm -hmm. These people are religious zealots for this stuff. And early on, when we started hearing about some of this stuff, I made the sort of comparison and I was like, well, we're not quite there yet, but you look at the great leap forward under Mao Zedong that mm -hmm. led to the death of millions and millions of people. The, the technology wasn't there. Everything in society, all of the evidence was this isn't going to work and people are going to die. But these big government institutions like the, like like I'd suggest the Communist Party or present day the World Economic Forum, not that their values align exactly, but they do not care about, well, there's food shortages. They're like, we don't care. We're instituting our principles. They're like, well, well these, these farmers are going to die and lose their farms. We don't care. This is the new world that we're seeing moving forward. They've seized this opportunity, as they say, which, which is, in other words, they, they're, they're happy to further human suffering if it uh, aligns with their final goals. It's, it's extremely alarming to see. And I'm very grateful, sort of, as you mentioned, to have people on the ground holding these people accountable and shining a light on it because you can literally talk to people who are well-informed and watch well, well-informed, but who watch news generally mainstream pretty regularly. And you talk about the Dutch farmer rebellion, or you even reference what happened with the trucker sort of resistance that took place in Canada here. And they think it's not a particularly big deal. They don't know about the massive crowds, the farmers, the protests going on all over the world, very often inspired by the things in Canada. And that's people are in our own backyard. So there's definitely a disconnect from the real world. Most of these people, they're the types of people who, who think that farming is a novelty and that they just get their food from the grocery store. So who needs farmers? Well, who, they don't get that the farmers put it in the grocery store. Um, so yeah, it's so important. This is one of those, COVID-19 was clearly one of them as well, but this attack on farmers is the sort of next step. And there is no, there is no clear cut emergency. They, they, they say there's a climate emergency, but there is no clear cut emergency, like an, like a looming pandemic here. They're just doing this and it is dire mm -hmm. and it is extreme. Again, not surprising though, here in Calgary, we're still under a state of emergency, according to GOT Gondek, which means absolutely nothing, but um, they're, they're great at creating emergencies and panic. And then uh, they don't seem to generate any realistic outcomes other than punishing working class people. Yeah. Punishing, you know, everyday ordinary folks. And then of course, more government control, more government power. Of course. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's also, I think it's really great to have someone on the ground there specifically because like, I really want to highlight the point that what's so fascinating about what's happening in the Netherlands is that not just that this is happening, not just that the government is imposing these absolutely insane restrictions, but the fact that the people are fighting back, like they are rising up and like, they've been pushed to the point here where they're literally like so desperate. These are people losing everything. The government is forcing these farmers to lose everything. And they've said, you know, like at this point, what more do we have to lose? And they're rising up, of course, not violently. They're, you know, it's very admirable just how direct they're able to act and protest without crossing any sort of line into violence, uh, especially considering just how desperate that they are. 
But it's the same sort of thing I think we saw in Canada with the, the truckers protests all yeah. across Canada, both in Ottawa and at the Coots border. And it's just it's sort of remarkable to see. And so I, I've loved seeing all the coverage that we've had so far from our previous trip there of seeing this, you know, this uprising, this farmers rebellion pushing back against these policies. And I'm looking forward to seeing, uh, you know, continuous coverage from Lewis as far as where this goes now. Like, like you're saying they're at an impasse, but like from here, where do they go? Will there be yeah. any, you know, give from the government? How far will the farmers go if they're not, you know, if their demands aren't met to actually you know, have some reasonable governance in this situation. And like the other thing too, that's so important with having people on the ground actually showing what's happening versus what the mainstream media does is the, if, if we and other independent media outlets weren't on the ground in Ottawa and weren't at Milk River, weren't at Coots, weren't covering all these stories, the vilification narrative might've worked. Like they might've mm -hmm. believed that the old lady with the mobility scooter attacked the RCMP. Uh, we had cameras there. We, it's so important to have independent media that doesn't lie and cover up what's really happening because eventually the government narratives fall apart. Eventually everyone sees that footage and the truth gets out. So beyond just sort of covering this, beyond reporting what's happening, um, if there are politicians out there spreading misinformation, well, having an independent journalists who are who are showing the actual action on the ground with boots on the ground prevents those sort of abuses that are basically propaganda campaigns to vilify people who are being completely peaceful so i think it is important to have mm -hmm. that sort of that angle covered as well so these people aren't vilified and marginalized um because we saw it was so peaceful mm -hmm. when you went to these types of events there was everyone was welcoming and warm um we, we've had politicians even federal leadership candidates saying like like Dr. Leslie Lewis saying like I'm a black woman and I walked alone through these people. I was getting cheered at, offered food. Um, there wasn't any racism. There wasn't any violence. Mm. It was the most peaceful and friendly protest uh, that that many people have seen, despite the sort of gravity of the situation. So, um, yeah, great to have that. Um, another another sort of stand that is being taken, and this is this is very much an extension of the conversation as well, though. But let's talk a little bit about what Sheila's doing. Yeah, I was just going to say, let's get into that because, you know, the yeah. reason I'm here coming for Sheila is she is currently on a mission at the behest of Rebel News, filing a formal complaint against Justin Trudeau, you know, speaking of human rights abuses, uh, with the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva. Now, you know, some people I mentioned this and they say, well, you know, that's, you know, the, the UN, you're really going to go to the UN and think you're going to find any justice with them. But, you know, the more I think about it, you're like, you know, why not try? Like, we're at a point now. Why not throw it out there? Because, I mean, Adam, why don't you help recap a little bit? Uh, just over the past couple of years, everything Justin Trudeau has done, the persecution we've seen here in Canada, the, you know, the cast of characters who have become political enemies of the state simply for standing up for fundamental rights and sort of the denial that so many of us in this country are living in, the fact that Trudeau really is turning into this tyrant where he is trying to crush his political opposition and so much of the world is thankfully, I think, seeing it now, but there are so still so many who just see him as this progressive wonder boy. So Yeah, and I, I think the number of people seeing him as a progressive wonder boy is rapidly declining. Mm -hmm. He certainly still likes to brand himself that way. But uh, you talked about the people who have been vilified, marginalized again, um, some of them the truckers, some of them the folks down at Coots Milk River, some of them the Ottawa truckers. But but it's such a wide array of people. You have Tamira Leach as well, um, who was a very peaceful um, Métis woman who, who had had enough and sort of took a stand, uh, but not like an aggressive, outspoken person. Um, similar along the lines with her, you had people like Pastor Tim Stevens and uh, Pastor James Coates uh, who were arrested and and they they very calm collected people they didn't really do anything to garner the ire of government officials anything any more than the the mosques that weren't obeying the rules but they were certainly uh targeted for selective enforcement and then there, there's obviously and and as we're looking at the video now the the story of pastor arthur poplowski um who i believe out of out of the majority of these people has probably spent the most day with behind bars certainly mm -hmm. the most days in in, in isolation solitary confinement has endured repeated dramatic arrests, including 
uh, roadside arrests, arrests on the tarmac at the airport, SWAT-style arrests at his home, um, and, and then these horrible conditions being made a villain in public enemy number one. Now, the majority of these people were opening their church, allowing people to gather, feeding the homeless. Like these, many churches forgot this, unfortunately, but people's needs don't decline when things get difficult, especially spiritual needs. They increase, and people need those networks of support more than ever. So these people during the during COVID nineteen weren't willing to compromise and undermine those networks, um, whether it be Tamara Leach standing with people, um, whether it be any of these pastors. There was pastors out east, right across this country, however, um, who were targeted. Then there was small business owners. Now, if you were a Costco or a Walmart, you were fine. But if you were Chris Scott at the Whistle Stop, a tiny little shop that that people fill up and get there. We probably wouldn't have heard the name, the whistle stop in our lifetimes, had they not sought to make an example out of the small business owner. He was like, no, I'm going to stay open. Uh, but there is such a wide array of people, but the crux, the similar factor between all of them was when they started to be bullied by the government, they said, no, thanks. And then they were barraged with just a, a campaign of, of malicious and, and volatile hatred by everyone from Justin Trudeau to Jason Kenney to Alberta Health Service lawyers. Like it was all the way through the government from the top down. We saw similar things out east as well, but it was, it was just a totally encompassing uh, effort to destroy anyone who dared to ask questions on any of these fronts. And I think Canadians were maybe a little bit I don't know if it was a state of disbelief or disconnected from it. Um, probably not the folks watching the stream, but some Canadians out there. They didn't get the grandeur of these abuses. Meanwhile, we see Pastor Arthur Poblowski's image in Times Square. We see Americans saying, look at Canada. It's a cautionary tale for what's going to happen here. We saw other countries. What, there's countries all over the world, whether it be Australia, whether it be the Dutch farmers now, um, that are raising the Canadian flag as the symbol of, of people taking a stand against great oppression. We have seen fundamental human rights violations. Now the courts are starting to get it right. We've seen Pastor Arthur Pawlowski handed categorical victory after victory. There's another victory to report today. In fact, mm. that report will be out soon, um, extending from that dramatic airport arrest. Those charges have been completely dropped, so stay tuned for that update. But Chris Scott granted an almost entire victory. I'm, we're certain to hear some of these charges being dropped against Tim Stevens based on this precedent. But um, the winds are coming, but the fact is these violations that were clear categorical constitutional violations and the courts the court of appeal have in alberta at least have acknowledged that that the justice adam germain sanctions which basically meant that chris scott arthur pawlowski couldn't speak without stating a declared government position couldn't uh, leave the province all these things they've they've been admitted as, as clear violations of constitutional rights and therefore fundamental human rights mm -hmm. now to your point about, well, what's the UN really going to do for us? Well, you know, towards the end of the Pastor Arthur Pawlowski and Chris Scott proceedings, where Sarah Miller of JSS Barristers and Chad Williamson of Williamson Law were advocating for those two clients and received a pretty big win, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, which has been basically shushed on this across the board and hasn't really come out, was actually a, sort of a, a, an observer or, or they sort of co-filed. So they were putting their weight behind the position that these people's rights were in fact infringed upon. So as the narrative shifts now, and I know it can be challenging, there can be an inclination towards being vindictive, but I think that there's a lot of merit in showing up at the UN, putting your cards on the table saying, all the courts are beginning to agree there was human rights violations here. I think this is a win-win, and I think it's so important that Sheila is there. Because on one hand, if they fail to act on this and they don't acknowledge that there was a human rights violation, it is a categorical con condemnation of the United Nations. And just proof now, almost legal proof, with, with some of the rulings that we're having, that they're unwilling to act. On the other hand, if they do acknowledge this and they do take some meaningful action, it may rejig their thinking 
and, and cast an important eye from this influential body towards the human rights violations that have taken place. So if we could pull up the URL just on the page so folks can mm -hmm. check it out, it's obviously not cheap. Sarah Miller of JSS Barristers, who secured so many of these Pastor Arthur Pawlowski wins, is with Sheila in Geneva. They went together and uh, are working on this uh, petition, submitting it. Um, and it's so important to have that strong legal basis it's a massive document that they've submitted, signed, and I believe it was approved and, and received by the United Nations now. There'll be a video on that coming out surely soon. Uh, but I think it's so important to have that strong sort of pushback. Uh, but these, these trips aren't cheap, obviously. So I do also encourage folks to sort of help out, to chip in if you can. Um, to help pay for the trip, the lawyering, all of this important networks work that goes into it. If we could just pull up the webpage one more time so people know where to find that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's so it's so important there. Like, like you were saying, we have one of the best legal minds we've seen here at Rebel News who put this together, Sarah Miller, who was the one who secured that incredible victory for Pastor Art. But also, like, if the UN does accept this and they are willing to, you know, make an official pronouncement that, you know, Trudeau has violated human rights and to recognize that officially as a body, even if they can't take any, you know, significant concrete action, if they managed, if they are willing to accept this and, and see it as yes, Justin Trudeau has been persecuting citizens mm -hmm. of his own country as, you know, he's been suppressing political opposition. If they say that, like the moral weight of that, the moral victory that can come from that mm -hmm. and the sort of legitimizing of everything we've been saying here in terms of no, like Justin Trudeau is not just some progressive wonder boy who's this, you know, prince of progressive policy here in Canada. He's leading the way for, uh, you know, for the world to follow. He himself has just become this complete tyrant who is yeah. oppressing anyone who seeks to oppose him or the policies he's seeking to implement and how Canada's democracy has been crumbling. And so I think it's worth a shot. And uh, well, and he, the UN is the group, he, like he, these are the mm -hmm. people he wants to impress. Mm -hmm. So even if you want to put aside the fact that there's, there's logical benefit to this, if you don't like Justin Trudeau and you want to take a petty shot at him, uh, what better than to have the U UN, the group he's been sucking up to and trying to acquire seats with what better than mm. them condemning him directly it's the best shot possible so if you think that this is important work if you're happy that Sheila's is there or if you just want justin trudeau to have another sort of stain on his already tarnished record go to humanrightscomplaint.com sign a petition consider chipping in to keep that work going because it's 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 like as we mentioned not cheap to have all this lawyering done and to have these mm. two folks sheila obviously such an instrumental part of our team flying over there humanrightscomplaint.com chip in what you can it'd be so greatly appreciated so yeah absolutely yeah and on that note i think we're going to break for an ad now one quick extra reminder that we would love to interact with you so again send us your hyper chat super chats rumble rants you know whatever platform you're on we would love to hear what you have to say we'll read out your comments let's get some interaction going with that let's break to this ad we'll see you back very soon stay with us so I absolutely love having the opportunity to chat with you, to chat with our ever-growing audience. But I'd actually love for you to have that opportunity as well. We actually have advertising opportunities available with rebelnews.com. We don't get handouts from the government. We trust on supporters, viewers, and advertisers like you. So instead of folks listening to me in this spot, they could actually be checking out your company, getting information about your business. For more information or to advertise with us, send an email to ads at rebelnews.com. Hmm. Absolutely. Please I do. I want to go horseback riding again. I'm good yeah. this week. That's great. You know, Adam, every time I, I get a video submitted, I see you're on a horse. I'm like, you know what? It seems like a good day out in Alberta. It seems like yeah. a good time. Well, you know, I, I have an interview scheduled and we, yeah. we were originally going to get it on horses uh, with Brian Jean. We, we're going to do an interview, mm. but it took them a little while to get back. So we couldn't line up the horses for that one. We're going to go for a uh, walk and chat, though. But uh, no horses this week, I'm afraid, for videos. Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, you know yeah. what? The, the beauty of the West, horseback and all. Yeah. Well, <laughs> on the topic, as we were discussing, of Justin Trudeau and his essential tyranny in Canada, um, the handgun ban making incredible mm. waves, especially in American media. They're so like, look at this. They're taking away the Canadians guns. It's coming for us. But 
so we know that the federal government announced this handgun ban. They're banning all handguns in Canada, banning the sale, possession eventually, I think, but for now, just this, the sale and exchange. And now, because that ban isn't coming into effect quickly enough, and because since they announced the ban, handguns have been flying off the shelves. I think it's something like, what, like a 900% increase in handgun yeah. sales in Canada since they announced the ban. They're now banning effective immediately through some more obscure, uh, you know, procedural way rather than through parliament. Uh, they're banning the import of handguns into Canada. So you can't restock those shelves once they're empty because uh, they may be flying off the shelves, but now they're basically saying, nope, sorry, the handgun ban that we want, it can't happen immediately. So in the meantime, we're going to ban all imports, which I think is through the same mechanism they use to like uh, to regulate dairy imports as well. But uh, mm. I mean, I know, Adam, you have a lot to say on this. You know, you were the one kind of leading the charge on our hands off our guns campaign when this ban was announced. So, I mean, what's your take on this latest news about us literally now saying, nope, we're banning all imports of handguns. You can't bring those guns legally across the border anymore. Well, I mean, there's a bunch of ways to go with this. The first mm. the first sort of self-evident point is that the people that you're trying to limit with these restrictions um, aren't generally buying guns legally, the violent criminals. So like under Justin Trudeau, with all these increased gun measures, almost across the board, gun violence has increased. And there's actually, I saw a graph the other day. I, I don't know where to find it. We probably won't be able to pull it up. Mm. But it was basically like the immediate jump of gun violence in Toronto. Like as soon as Harper finished and as soon as Trudeau was in, it was like a, it was like a significant, like an 18% jump that sustained mm. just from that shift in, in in an understanding that they were going to be soft on crime. I can't remember the details exactly, but at Hands Off for Guns, you'll be able to find it, um, where while they're bringing in these restrictions for legal firearms owners who are screened on a daily basis and have to go through all these safety measures, and there's like a, like a negligible statistical correlation between legal firearms owners um, and firearms violence, like literally the only sort of Self, the only one that's sort of demonstrable is self-harm. The majority of violent crime out there, particularly handgun crime, is by non-registered weapons. People who have mm -hmm. a restricted firearms license and are going to the range don't generally commit crimes because they're being police-checked automatically because they have that restricted possession and acquisition license. So you're just automatically being checked mm -hmm. every day to see if you've done anything. So the the big joke when we went to a gun shop right off the bat was like big Trudy's the number one gun salesman in the country. Um, everyone could have predicted that there'd be a significant increase in gun sales. Now it's, it, it's not significant statistically or as far as gun violence, because they're all being legally purchased, but they're going out of their way to punish these people who shoot it. Cause realistically what, for people who don't know, if you have a handgun pistol revolver, whatever, you basically can't shoot it anywhere other than a gun club. Like mm -hmm. you can't take it out. You can take your rifle out to a field and shoot a target on crown land. Um, you can, you can go to certain places and hunt, but you can't go to a hunting place and have a handgun with you. You can't even transport it there. So the restrictions mm -hmm. are so limited and narrow. You certainly can't walk around with a handgun in Toronto. So these people committing uh, gun crimes in the middle of cities with handguns they aren't legal gun owners from the get-go so th this is a this is a anyone who knew anything about guns it's literally as though they're taking people who don't know anything whatsoever about firearms and trying to get them to write the laws about firearms mm -hmm. so this was absolutely predictable the second that they brought in a ban there was literally when i was at shooting edge doing an interview with uh, jr uh who's the owner there was lineups out the door and they were out of stock and they were pumping guns. I, I can 100% assure you that there are more firearms, handguns particularly among Canadians now than there ever have been because of Justin Trudeau's efforts to reduce the amount of handguns in Canadians' hands. Like everything he does is almost the, the he's, he's increased sales dramatically and people who maybe never were going to buy a handgun went out to get one because they they want it basically grandfathered in or they're hoping mm -hmm. that that they'll have it so if they would have just left this alone if the intention was to keep handguns out of people's hands it would have been better off um 
but yeah, as, yeah. As, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Go oh, ahead. no, yeah. yeah, I was going to say, it's like, I just, I love that. It's like, if you want something to become suddenly extremely prevalent among a population, just ban it, and then everyone's going to yeah. go for it. But I mean, can we, can we pull that article back up, that CTV News article? Because I just, as just a bit of a side note here, I found it fascinating that I thought everything in that article was super on point. And it's interesting to note that a lot of the mainstream media on issues like this are no longer running cover for Justin Trudeau. Like the headline of this article itself, if we can scroll up here, is concerns emerge over misleading Canadian handgun import ban. And if you go through the article, it essentially makes most of the points that you were making, Adam, where they're going through and they're interviewing actual uh, gun owners and those in the firearms business in Canada and getting their mm -hmm. views and them just explaining how nonsensical these policies are and how they're harming yeah. Canadians and how they're ineffective and they're just, you know, putting at wasted efforts into harming legal gun owners with zero attention being paid whatsoever to the real means by which illegal firearms are getting into the country and are being used in actual crimes. And so, yeah, it's just fascinating to see an article that I read. I'm like, wow, yeah, everything here seems pretty on point. And it's just interesting to see even down to the headline of how, you know what, they're actually mm. attacking this policy that normally doing would be journalism? great. I know, doing real journalism would normally be, be great fodder to pump up. Like, oh, look at this. Trudeau is taking meaningful action against gun violence in Canada. How great is he? Whereas that whole sort of uh, attitude I've found has slowly been slipping away in a lot of our sort of corporate media there, which is very interesting to see. You know, one of the more refreshing things, and this this might have been before I was really into firearms, mm -hmm. I'm a late adopter. I probably would have been on the other side of some of these talking mm -hmm. points, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, but there was a girl, a journalist from Vice, a lady, a woman, I suppose, um, but a young woman um, from, it was a Vice video. I, I, I People, I'm sure, can find it. But she came into it into firearms is like, I have, I'm opposed. I think nobody needs them. It's ridiculous. Mm. Um, and she went through the firearms, like they, they asked her as a journalist to go through the training, try shooting, get the entire process. Um, and basically by the end, she was like a gunny mm -hmm. who like, who loved shooting and everything. And eventually she sold her guns and she said, yeah, there's way too much red tape and the government just ruined a perfectly safe and friendly Canadian sport. So she yeah. went from, she went from like, nobody needs this to like, everyone should have this, but the government's making it too much of a pain. If you look at this, this objectively, if you look at the statistics, um, they're, they're literally softening the punishment on violent criminals who use guns to do, use illegal guns to do bad things and, and punishing people who are, who are just trying to shoot at targets as a sport. Yeah, it's it's wild. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And uh, while, while we're on the topic, I'm pretty sure we have a video clip. Also, I think of one of Trudeau's ministers uh, admitting that this latest uh, ban on the import of handguns was in response to that 900 percent increase of handguns. So let's throw to that clip if we have that ready, because I, I think that's a good, uh, good bit to show yeah. there. Why you didn't do it months ago before there was a surge in sales? Look, I readily concede that there is urgency to this matter, and we've been very innovative and creative. This is not necessarily an intuitive legal measure that we have come up with. It is something that is unprecedented, and it shows the lengths to which uh, we're going to leave and exhaust all options when it comes to saving lives. And so I am grateful to Global Affairs and to Minister Jolie for exercising her ministerial authorities to accelerate the progress that we want to make on this important agenda. And we'll continue to push forward with C21, working and reaching across partisan lines where we can, because this is an issue that touches every single community. And there is a very strong correlation in the explosion of the handgun universe and the increase in handgun crime. And that's why, uh, again, we'll, we'll look at both conventional and non-conventional and creative options like we did today to save lives. I want to give people a sense of how significant the surge was. Uh, the Ontario Chief Firearms Officer told iPolitics that between June 1st and June 30th, there was a 914% increase, 914% increase uh, in handgun transfers over the same period in 2021. So you are making another move now. I want to ask you, it's two weeks before this comes into effect, do you anticipate that there will be perhaps a smaller but another surge now in sales? Well, I, I concede that there might be, but that's why I'm grateful to Minister Jolie for actually shrinking the amount of time when this would come into force. Typically, uh, in exercising her authorities under the Import-Export Controls Act, you would require 30 days. We've taken it down to 14 days so that we can, again, move forward more quickly, expeditiously to bring the effect of the national handgun freeze 
uh, into full force as much as we possibly can. Well, I, I'd say just first at a high level that the vast majority of handgun sales are imported, uh, and that's because we have a very small manufacturing sector here. And so that's one of the reasons why we've turned to this particular measure. Oh, man. And for those who uh, yeah. may have forgotten or don't know Marco Mendocino, he is the uh, serial liar. We've had a, a number of campaigns uh, most recently calling for him to resign for. What was it he was lying about most recently? I'm, I'm drawing oh, a blank. Here. I can't even keep track. Yeah, because it was there was stuff about the convoy where he was lying about the public safety uh, implications of the convoy in Ottawa, and then there was something else. I'm forgetting what it I think was. It, I think it is firemendocino.ca or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel like it's uh, it's nice to have that uh, that context here. If we pull that up, there we go. He must resign. We are claiming the police asked the federal government to invoke the right. Emergencies yeah, Act. Yeah. That's what it was. Okay, so yeah, it yeah. was convoy related. It was Emergencies Act. Yeah, yeah. so. He's quite the character. He's been uh, a very faithful lackey, it would seem, to Justin Trudeau in furthering yeah. his agenda of clamping down on the rights and freedoms of everyday Canadians. And uh, there you have it, banning the import of all handguns. 1,800% yeah, sales increase prediction. Yeah. You know, the other thing, too, there, that he's just, like, lying about. These statistics aren't yeah. available. They just brought this, like, this thing in, and, and illegal firearms... He was basically falsely implying that there was an increase in vi gun violence, that there's a correlation. And then she's like, well, there's been an increase in sales. I don't mm. know if she was running cover or she sort of misunderstood what he was saying there. But, like, those statistics wouldn't be available yet, so that's not true. Mm -hmm. But there, there is a statistical correlation of increase in gun violence. It's not to do with, with handgun sales in the last two months, but it has everything to do with the guy who's leading the country. There is a, a categorical correlation of an increase in, in handgun violence, and it's with Justin Trudeau. It's also with more progressive mayors coming into, into these cities. Mm -hmm. You then see softening of consequences on gun crimes. Uh, there, there's a correlation, but it's not. it doesn't have to do with ownership. Yeah, absolutely is. So, yeah, wild story again. You know what? If your local gun store is still in stock, maybe you might consider, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but... Uh, mm -hmm. Might be worth checking out the shelves. I don't know. But in the meantime... If you want to see a lineup... Be yeah, exactly. Yeah, store. If you want to go gawk at some people standing in line, it's either a COVID testing center. You know, last year we had those lines up. Now <laughs> it's the handgun store. Uh, so it's very, very fun to see. We're going to throw to another ad right now. Make sure to stay with us. We will be right back. Hey, folks. Check out the newest arrival to the Rebel News Store. Yes, F is for Fidel and F is for... Father? I mean, could it be? Yes, it, half this photo, the colored half, is Justin Trudeau. The black and white half is a young Fidel Castro. Wait now, or is it vice versa? It's so confusing. I'm a huge Forensic Files fan. Wouldn't it be great if we could have a piece of Justin's DNA and a piece of Fidel's DNA and put the rumor to bed once and for all? But in the meantime, we'll just have to walk around wearing this shirt, hinting at a great Canadian conspiracy. Or is it? In any event, if you want to get this shirt, folks, go to the Rebel News Store and check this out. Type in our new discount code, that's SUMMER, S-U-M-M-E-R. And if you buy two unisex t-shirts, you get an additional one for free. What a deal. Like I said, Justin Trudeau, Fidel Castro. As they used to say on the ABC detergent ads, can you tell the difference? I can't tell the difference. Oh, Adam, that is my favorite ad for our store. Yeah, David Menzies really is absolutely killing it. You know what? I, um, want, I want an ad with David Menzies on a horse, and then I'll be satisfied ooh, entirely. Actually, I would love to yeah. see that. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. going to put in a request. I want to see uh, Rebel <laughs> News takes David Menzies to the ranch to do some horseback yeah. riding. I would love to see that. Uh, maybe we'll have to set up a, a campaign, get a petition going, calling for David Menzies yeah. to go riding a horse. I'd be into that. Yeah, mounted Menzies done. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, next up on our schedule of topics here is one of your campaigns that you've been spearheading, Adam, cleanwaternow.ca. And this has been such a consistent issue in Canada, especially after repeated promises and failures from Justin Trudeau to address this and then simply refusing to, failing to, whatever way you want to look at it. Do you mind explaining to us what the campaign's all about and what we're calling for right now to kind of 
finally saying this needs to be done. Let's just do yeah. it. You know, I had a conversation uh, months ago with Jocelyn Bergwick of Sundance Construction, uh, and she, an, an Indigenous woman, sort of has has an intimate personal sort of inside experience. She's done some of these contracts. She's been at the table while they're negotiating these contracts. I encourage people to check that video out because she very much lays down in, in I think, pretty much a, a, an unprecedented fashion why some of these communities don't have clean drinking water. Um, so that conversation has had this sort of on the back of my mind as, as in what's mm. going on, what's the limiters. There's a lot of corporate greed. There's a lot of big companies, uh, SNC-Lavalin included among them, that uh, that are, there could be an easier solution in place. And then they're like, oh, let's do the 10-year, $40 million solution because that's a little bit more profitable. A lot of that stuff going on. Very often they use the sort of indigenous smokescreen of we can't ask questions to obscure mm -hmm. the corruption that's preventing these communities from getting water. We also recently obviously had Pope Francis uh, visiting uh, Canada, popereports.com for all of that coverage. But a big sort of theme we talked to people were, was people were generally like, it doesn't mean a ton, but at least the 85-year-old man crossed the ocean to say, sorry, that's great. But when we said, what would mean something? What would be substantial? And then one of the things we often spoke with people uh, about was, would it would it be more significant to address and more reflective of an actual change of heart towards Indigenous communities to address the clean drinking water crises rather than spending money or energy on an apology tour? And the mm -hmm. universal sentiment across the board was yes even if people were very happy the pope was there they're like it would mean a lot more if we just did something sub substantive um so i, I just want to put this into context for people because when i was doing research mm -hmm. for this this was jarring and, and this just indicates just how bad justin trudeau is i'll remind everyone justin's own dad as well as katien were involved in the residential school um system uh, the last residential school closed in 1997 there's a current drink water advisory in effect that they're they're now working on, but it's still in effect from 1995. Mm. So two years before they closed the last residential school, there was a drink water advisory that is still in effect today. So we talk about the, the residential schools and the harms of the past and all of that stuff, but there's literally still issues extending from that sort of reckless liberal government mentality. Um, there's also a lot of finger pointing, blaming the church for everything. Well, I'll, I'll remind folks, the residential schools were basically mandated and paid for by the government. They just asked the churches to staff them, which doesn't doesn't excuse the, the church, but there's certainly a lot of finger pointing and distraction. And it, it's so indicative of the fact that these people are eager to make money for their friends uh, in the indigenous community. They refer to it as the cottage industry because you'll have executives meeting with folks up in the Ontario uh, Lake Districts and their cottages and negotiating these massive, massive deals instead of being like, what's the fastest way to get water to these communities? And make no mistake, there isn't more than enough money going around mm -hmm. so that every indigenous community could have the same quality drinking water as you or I. It's politics and it's uh, it's games that they're playing that are preventing this. It's, it's individuals wanting to get wealthy rather than addressing these concerns that's preventing this from happening. It's a very universal sentiment, I think. And I know some people are like a little, they have a little bit of a problem with calling water a basic human right. Um, I, I, I push back on that. And I say that especially in a developed nation to suggest that every Canadian having access to water is a fundamental basic human right and mm -hmm. demanding the government, which takes so much of our money, provide at least that is, is a very minimal safe starting point. This is a nonpartisan issue. Uh, it only becomes partisan when politicians mm -hmm. campaign on things like this, but then don't act on it. But this is an issue. I don't care if you're a left-wing NDP radical progressive or a staunch conservative. I think we should be in agreement that we need to put an end to these games and we need to get clean drinking water to these communities. Mm -hmm. And for folks out there who don't know how bad it is, um, sometimes they'll, they won't do adequate ground surveys and the process they use to purify water actually reacts with sulfur and creates carcinogenic water that the communities can't use. Some of these communities, the water is so toxic that the children can only bathe once a week or they begin to rash. This isn't just, oh, the water doesn't taste quite right. This is unsafe and unusable water for these communities. Um, so I'm just encouraging everyone 
to go to cleanwaternow.ca, sign our petition. I think we've done one or two videos on this and we already have almost 10,000 signatures. But this is an issue that I feel we could get like 100,000 signatures on. Mm. So sign that petition, send it around to your friends, regardless of their politics or their position. Um, this is something that everyone should probably be on board with. So do sign that mm -hmm. petition. Uh, we're going to continue to do more stories on this, hold politicians to accountable, and hopefully generate some real meaningful action to put an end to the 27 remaining First Nations communities that have these drink water advisories in effect. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting. It's important to sort of highlight, like you were saying, there is more than enough money to actually achieve this that is being pumped into these sort of programs. And it's sort of this government corruption and sort of there's a smokescreen around what's going on that is just not happening. And it's such a universal yeah. sentiment. You'll have so many people across the political spectrum saying, guys, this is an incredible issue. It is so solvable. We can so yeah. easily do this with the resources we have. Let's do it. And everyone calls for it, but it just never happens. And I remember we were having a conversation when uh, we kind of had the whole team together here in Ontario, sort of doing a bit of a retreat. I remember you saying like, could we not just do this ourselves? Like what if Rebel News with our faithful viewers tried to crowdfund the money you would need and then spearhead the project of giving one of these communities clean drinking water just to prove how possible it is. And I just remember thinking yeah. like, wow, it's incredible we're actually saying this in such a realistic like, yeah, like let's actually do this. And of course that didn't happen. There are some logistic hurdles that uh, we weren't able to sort of meet feasibly. But I just feel like like when you can actually have a conversation and say, you know what, we ourselves could go ahead and do this. And yet our yeah. government with all of its resources, the one that is already managing these communities because the government is so paternalistic uh, over these indigenous communities themselves, they have such control. I think it's just incredible to see that they're failing to fix this issue, which is so like well, actually possible to solve. If you want like a small scale example of this, mm -hmm. When when I, we were talking about all the arson that was taking the the sort of false mass graves narrative that was pushed, which I'll also have another report on, and obviously we've got the incredible documentary from Dre and Matt coming out soon. But uh, when we saw the mass arson and everything, I was speaking with a number of Indigenous communities, and they invited me out to their church on Sutina. Uh, and we got there and they were sort of telling me the story and how they were, they basically had a vision in their cultural tradition that there would be a Catholic church here. And then they got together and the, uh, some of the community members donated the land. Um, and th this church, a beautiful old church, no running water, very sort of uh, basic, but the roof was leaking. Now, they could get multi-million dollar grants for sports complexes, but a couple blocks away the church, they couldn't get money for a roof to prevent it from leaking and becoming damaged. Shocking, the Liberals don't like churches. Um, but we thats we, we did a fundraiser. It took, I think the, the people were so on board that it took us a day to fundraise a replacement roof for this church mm. and take care of them. We did that project. I'm actually gonna go back at the end of this month to, to do a look what we did a year ago. But you take that on a sort of macro level, that one instance of a church roof that just needs a roof job, and they can't get money. Well, what eventually happens is the place floods and then they give them millions of dollars for a new building that takes 10 years to get done. That's what we're seeing with these plants. Very often they need someone maintaining the water preservation or treatment plant and they need new UV bulbs or they need a new $10,000 part. They don't do that and then the whole thing breaks and falls apart. That's what we're seeing on the macro level. Um, I really do think that we probably could address some of these concerns and I have sort of been working at, at some of that. But one of the problems is it is so uh it's so sort of as you said paternalistic but it's so like seven government agencies are involved yeah. so I, I spent i spent like a day on the phone saying okay this community doesn't have water what would it cost to get it and they literally couldn't they hadn't even done like surveys and determined what they need on a 20-year wow. thing like i'm like can we give you can we raise yeah. two hundred thousand dollars and get this part they couldn't even formulate an answer yeah. as to what so we didn't know if we if it would be a matter of raising 20 grand or 7 million and nobody could solve that sort of predicament for us it was yeah extremely troubling mm. you know what? i'm actually just thinking now because i was like if you were saying all these government agencies couldn't even give you an answers it starts ringing in my head sort of pure polyev's you know line about the government gatekeepers which i think he's so on point about and i think it'll mm -hmm. be interesting to try and ask him the next uh, next time we have a chance uh, to put questions to him to ask him like, okay, what do you think about the government gatekeepers who've been preventing this very solvable problem from being solved? And will you do something about it? If like, you know, if you become prime minister, 
will you do what Justin Trudeau has promised repeatedly to do and has never done? I think it's yeah. a fascinating point. I don't know. That's just the first thoughts come to my mind now. But um, agreed. Yeah, that would be a, a good thing to ask because he's such a clear front runner right now in the CPC leadership race. Seems very clear looking at the latest numbers that he's likely going to win come September for the leadership election, um, yeah. which means he's got a clear shot straight to the prime ministership. So uh, actually, our next story up on the docket here has to do with him. Uh, conservative MP threatening to leave the party if Pierre Polyev becomes the leader, which I think is kind of hilarious. Uh, there's this sort of narrative, I think, that Jean Charest is really trying to push, that Pierre Polyev is an extreme radical right-wing yeah. person who would pull the conservative party into some uncharted waters. Uh, and it's hilarious to see uh, this Quebec MP saying, you know what, if he's elected, I'm not going to stay in the conservative party. I'm going to take a principled stand when... Really, the only things Pierre Polyev has been saying is I want to make Canada freest country on earth and remove government yeah. gatekeepers and, you know, classic lines. A lot of them are very much Harperisms, which uh, it's funny to say he's so radical when we had a very, you know, successful sitting prime minister for so long saying the exact same things. I don't know. Well, what do you think, Adam? I just think this is kind of ironic. Yeah, it's I mean, like Harper was a moderate centrist. He wasn't yeah. even socially conservative on core issues. Um, and people are trying to brand Polly ever as an extremist like Harper. Yeah. Harper was like he, he, he was progressive on abortion and marriage. Um, and economically, he was pretty sound. Most people won't criticize Harper economically. So if you're trying to paint a picture of Polly ever as that, um, I think there's an effort because Polly Everett is effective on social media to brand him like a Trump populist. Um, I wish um, <laughs> he's not. Um, if anything, because because this is this is the distinction. Pierre Polly ever paid fifty grand to not be on stage. Mm -hmm. Trump Trump would not miss an opportunity to be on a stage. Uh, you couldn't pay him fifty grand not to get on a stage. Um, Polly Everett is is charismatic and he says the right things and conservatives are a little bit scared because we haven't had a remotely charismatic leader. Mm -hmm. Harper wasn't particularly charismatic. So no. he is charismatic, but he is very moderate centrist. Um, the only sort of points that he has that are maybe a bit out there which I'd agree with entirely are like mm. defund the CBC um, that he says and, and has people chant and uh, talking about freedom and stuff. But the majority of what he said has said, while in the madness of COVID-19 might have mm -hmm. seemed a little extreme, most of what he said now courts are beginning to agree with and the mainstream narrative is coming around to, oh yeah, we were obviously wrong and this is a sensible opinion. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, this is, it, you can look at the polling, Jean Charest, depending on the polls, among non-conservative voters is preferred a little bit over Polyèvre. So mm -hmm. it's, and I mean, it's like a couple percent. Um, so the argument that they're trying to go on and that what Jean Charest, knowing that conservative voters are rational, mm -hmm. what Jean Charest, it, it's smart, whoever, it's probably Ougier or someone, I don't know, someone on the campaign has said, listen, the angle we have to go with right now is if you don't vote for Charest, Polyev is going to lose to Trudeau. That's the crux of their campaign right now. It's based on sort of marginal, slim polling margins, but it's it's slightly reflected in reality. But uh, this this guy saying this, it's it's I don't know if it's an intentional correlation to the Charest campaign. Um, but if you're going to leave over someone as semi-centrist, who's a little freedom oriented as Pierre Polyever, you shouldn't have been in the Conservative Party in the first place. If you've been happy with Aaron O'Toole and Andrew Shear's performance, caving and flipping on just about everything, um, it, you, you belong in that Conservative Party, but I think the Conservative Party, we've seen renewal, we've seen excitement. Um, they're basically losing everyone who is conservative-ish to the People's Party. Um, mm -hmm. With Pierre Polyever coming back in, people are, seem to have flipped back. Now, they may come to regret that and have some buyer's remorse once elected. We could see the, the Conservative Party revert to the sort of Aaron O'Toole whataboutism, liberal light, mm -hmm. like like non-substantial. But I mean, I, frankly, Adieu, if this guy wants to go, uh, okay. <laughs> you, you don't want any sentiment of conservative principles in your conservative leader. You probably shouldn't be in the conservative party. Yeah, no, exactly.
And on that note, and actually, we're going to come back a little bit because you mentioned uh, in the height of COVID, Pierre Polyev might have seemed a little more uh, out there because we had such a shift leftward in terms of government control and policy during COVID-19. We're going to throw to an ad real quick. We're going to come back. I think we're going to talk about the other campaign that you've been uh, spearheading, Adam, on that note of COVID-19 management. And then uh, we'll make sure absolutely to be getting to all of your chats you've been sending us. So stay tuned. We'll be back with you in just a minute. All right, back at it. Adam, real quick, because we are running short on time here. Unfortunately, there's so much I'd love to keep talking about, um, yeah. but we're going to have to parse this down a little bit because we are getting towards the end of our hour. Time's been flying. Yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about your pay it back campaign where we sort of switch gears to the COVID-19 topic here? Yeah, so uh, Dina Hinshaw took almost $600,000 um, in a year. So, I mean, if you do the math there, that's that's about $11,000 a week, which is 23 times what the government determined people needed to get by on CERB if they were laid off because of COVID mandates. Um, so this mentality from health officials that we're all in it together, um, this is this is pandemic profiteering at its core. Now, don't get me wrong, I understand that there probably is some, this is probably within the contract, mm -hmm. but she's been categorically condemned by pro lockdowners mm -hmm. and freedom fighters alike she's made serious blunders like blaming the death of a a brain cancer related death of a child on covid 19 when it basically wasn't a factor um she's been sort of unprepared and unable to answer questions that clearly for someone making that kind of money in her position um her base salary being like three hundred and twenty-seven thousand or yeah. something like that um should be prepared to do so this is someone who's been condemned and we're all in it together apparently but there's certainly yeah. been no lack of cashing in and capitalizing um for those of us in the re real world imagining our already massive salary getting a quarter million dollar bonus anyone excusing this or saying well that was the terms of her job i don't care if those were the terms of her job a quarter million dollar bonus for a health official when everyone else is suffering and they're closing down emergency rooms and limiting hours and there's they're cutting back ambulances partially because of management issues which hell she should be taking a look at because it's part of her job but also partially because of funding cuts it's a bad look. It's a really, really, really mm -hmm. bad look. And, and it completely flies in the face of the we're all in it together narrative. The COVID-19 response has been a disaster. Now, you can blame Jason Kenney or you can blame Dina Hinshaw. Each of them is going to point somewhere else. No one's accountable. But ultimately, Jason Kenney was in charge of the province. She was the chief medical officer of health these decisions ultimately fall to their heads. Now, no one wants to take accountability. No one is admitting, not even Travis Taves, current UCP leadership hopeful, that they've signed off on this payment. It's a disaster. But I mean, the fact remains, Dean Hinshaw absolutely needs to resign. Before she does this, she needs to pay this money back. Uh, the rest of us, many of which have lost jobs, suffering, whatever, people out there in the world en masse, losing jobs, often without severance, while she is cashing in, it's absolutely just gross. It, it, there's no other way to describe it. Mm. Um, so we do have a campaign at payitback.ca. I encourage you to go there, sign our petition, almost at 10,000 signatures already. We really need to put the pressure on. Um, if anyone else snuck away or questionably got a quarter million dollars from their job, they'd be held accountable. We can't have politicians like the Sky Palace not having any consequence, quarter million dollar bonus while other people are being gutted for over financial reasons, walking away with that. It's not acceptable. Sign the petition, please, to hold her accountable. There you have it. All right. Now, still, while on the topic of COVID-19, I think there are a few things I'd like to highlight here. So I'm going to rapid fire through a quick, uh, quick few items here. So um, and other COVID-19 news, we have Ontario government saying that masks will not be mandatory in Ontario schools this fall. That's wonderful to see. 
because frankly, I was concerned that this fall, you know, they'd be saying, all right, you know, we're concerned about another wave, time to mask up the kids because the kids are always the first ones to be forced to put on the masks, which makes no sense seeing as the the lowest risk. Um, But, you know, so that is wonderful news from Ontario. We have, uh, maybe we can just flash this while I'm talking about it. Life in Beijing right now, uh, relentless COVID testing and health app that dictates where you go um, so just more standard Chinese Communist Party authoritarianism making itself manifest right now. I was, re- I was reading also there, I think there's another capital in a different province of China that was having a complete lockdown and another COVID outbreak. So seems that Communist China is not shying away from their zero COVID strategy, which, uh, I mean, I'm not I'd surprised. Love see, I'd love to see their COVID strategy in the uh, concentration camps for the Uyghur Muslims. I wonder what their yeah. what their protocols are for the people they're they're enslaving and isolating in camps. Yeah, it's very true. You know, I guess tyrants get a tyrant. Uh, so yeah, very sad. I would not want to be in China right now, or uh, you know, ever. Uh, quite North frankly, <laughs> I'm, you know, I, I love the Chinese people, but as long as the Chinese Communist Party is in pl- in uh, power, no thank you. Um, another COVID-19 news, recently elected Costa Rica president Rodrigo Robles rescinds the vaccine mandate, makes it illegal to force anyone to get the jab. I Atta think boy. that's very interesting. You know what? A little, little bit from Costa Rica. I love seeing throughout all of COVID-19, you know, so uniform, all these government leaders, these like leaders of countries enforcing these same harsh lockdown policies. And then you see like some of the smaller countries that seem overlooked, like they're not in on all of it. And you sort of have a leader saying like, no, that we're not going to do that. And it's always fun to see. I think Jamaica yeah. did that once uh, last year. I saw that Costa Rica now, a few others. It's been fun to sort of see them pop up and be like, no, we're, we're not doing this. And it's, it's always well, great. There's been so much, so many countries and Dina Hinchra did this a lot was just mm. follow the leader. It wasn't look at the evidence. It's like, oh, they're doing this. We better do this. Oh, Alberta. Oh, Ontario is doing this. We better do this instead of looking at the evidence and forming mm. a policy. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know what? I think now we've essentially got one minute left on our hour. I think it's time to get into the chats. We've put it off well long enough. Let's start throwing some chats up here. Thank you so much to everyone who sent them in. Billy Howard, Costa Rican president, has made it illegal to mandate or coerce people into taking the vax, we were just talking about, or restrict undervaxed rights. So shouldn't Justin Trudeau be arrested there or at least deported? I think that ties in nicely what we were talking about, about our uh, human rights complaint to the UN. Yeah. Yeah, so... I think uh, you're right. If we're going to see some uh, consistency here, uh, yeah, Justin Trudeau has been doing pretty awful things, forcing his yeah. policies on. Well, people. and I think the hope is that that there's some metric of accountability, whether it be Pastor Arthur Tamara Leach, whatever fiscal mm-hmm. remuneration for their, and we know for for Arthur Pavlovsky is, is 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 the fact that he spent that time behind bars. The majority of those charges have been thrown out, so it's very mm-hmm. likely fiscal remuneration. But uh, these politicians just getting off scot free after absolutely dumping all over the constitution, um, it, it's offensive, and I'm, I'm hoping there's some metrics of accountability moving forward. Yeah, you're so right. Uh, next up. We have AMT60. In 2019, the World Economic Forum and the UN signed a strategic partnership framework. I just looked it up. Since our PM is a World Economic Forum puppet and doing what they want, I'm skeptical the complaint will work. And will it be in the mainstream media? Well, very doubtful that we'll get any mainstream coverage about this unless the UN were to actually, you know, take and accept the complaint and issue a statement on it and sort of recognize these human rights abuses. Then I think that would make some waves. But uh, in the meantime, I think uh, I think we're just gonna have to wait and see. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, if even if there is a a, a negative response mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't seem substantial, that could certainly generate um, a, a response from some mainstream outlets mm-hmm. as well. But like I said earlier, either way, you're getting you're you're forcing them to weigh in on this, which mm-hmm. is going to be very revealing of of where they are. Yeah. Very very true. Uh, let's see here. We have out J. So you want Menzies to change out his fedora for a cowboy hat? Yes, I would love. I would love to see the Menzies Western special episode. <laughs> I would pay to see that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Put that behind the paywall. Uh, subscribers yeah. only. Uh, yeah. It would be worth it. I'm sure we get a lot mm-hmm. of subscribers just to see Menzies riding horses. Yeah. Uh, Adam Ottawa says, got my Summer Rebel t-shirts today. Thanks two for the four reusable plastic bags too they will come in handy to dispose of my cat litter well adam ottawa i'm so happy to hear you got your shirts 
and I'm great to hear using those plastic bags, putting them to good use, uh, <laughs> scooping that cat litter. Never fun, but uh, you know, I'm glad we're, we're using those plastic bags. Uh, King, 7734. Does the rainbow community get bent out of shape when a person says they're flying from JFK to Heathrow Airport? It's a trans, transatlantic flight. Oh, man. Does the transatlantic become the Pacific? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, like, I guess it depends on how the ocean's feeling. You know, we, we're going to have to ask it. Make sure we don't yeah. misidentify the ocean, Adam, okay? Yeah. Make sure you're being sensitive. I'll ask uh, next time. Yeah, exactly. We'll um, get Drea to investigate. Yeah, of course. Of we'll course. Ask anything. We can have one person check with each ocean. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll go and <laughs> check in. Uh, Frasbo, the real question is, how much money did she get from the World Economic Forum? You know what? That is an interesting question. I really, really hope it's zero. And I imagine she's getting more than enough just exploiting the taxpayer. Uh, but you know what? <laughs> Who's to say? Very often how this works is after they finish a post, then they get a super juicy job. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, a bunch of politicians magically get wealthier while they're in office. Yeah. So it's really, it's interesting. Yeah, exactly. All that sort of stuff. You know, I think normally they exploit connections, maybe some insider trading, all of that. I'm not sure there's explicit, you know, payrolls coming from the World Economic Forum because I don't think they yeah. would need to. But hey, yeah. I can't uh, can't say for certain. Well, it's been fun. Is that, I is that it? I think, I think that's it for our chats. Yeah, well, that's it. Adam, it has been an absolute pleasure hosting a live stream yeah. today with you. Uh, for all of you viewers, thanks so much for staying with us. Those of you who have stuck with us thus far, We'll be back at it tomorrow, not us specifically, but we do host this every day, rotating hosts, Monday through Friday, the Rebel News daily live stream. Make sure to check back in tomorrow at noon Eastern, 10 a.m. Mountain Time. And uh, until next time, make sure you're, uh, you're staying safe in this world, staying free, and uh, try not to let the tyrants get the best of you. Talk to you later, Adam. See ya. A lot of people are talking about the farmers and, of course, if the farmers give up their land to the state that they should do it for the climate what are your thoughts on that the whole the idea of it, it's for flight fighting climate change well what's your thoughts honestly i don't think that's the the real cause i think uh, they need uh, well it's <clears throat> you can already see it a little bit uh, they need that land for other things maybe for housing for example uh, it's not for for climate change climate change is a whole different story i think mm -hmm. Uh, there is, it's, it's, it is changing. I don't really think it will be the, the, the fault of the humans eh, for, uh, for us, but um, I don't think that's true. So they, they, they have another agenda instead of the climate. Yeah. yeah. What, what do you think that agenda might be? Uh, well, well, yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, I think, a long story, but uh, <laughs> at the end, it's a little bit about control, I guess. Um, uh, most, yeah, most, most, most control. And um, yeah, I don't know. That's, uh, that's hard to uh, say in one sentence, I guess, yeah. but- um, Maybe uh, the World Economic Forum, you heard of definitely, them? Definitely, yeah, definitely. If you can see it, they are in all cabinets now around the world. Here in Holland, a lot of uh, ministers are part of the World Economic Forum. They have this agenda. Uh, you see it even in the plans of our uh, cabinet. Of, uh, uh, you see this, they almost use the same text as the World Economic Forum. Mm. So you can really see that there is, the, the, it's not for us, it's more like, there's a bigger plan with Europe. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, 